Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Hammerslay Inquisition, a disquisition, if you will, in which my guests and I are going to go deep on one specific topic and take that wherever it leads. If by some chance you're listening to this and you're not already a subscriber to the Hammerslay Exposition, which is my very occasional email newsletter, I just have to assume that you're being stubborn or you can't read. I don't know. It's very suspicious. But you can reassure me by signing up for said newsletter at buttondown.email slash hammerslay. And if you saw my most recent email missive, you know that I went off on a little bit of a tangent about the Beatles and the giant Get Back documentary uh, that was recently featured on Disney+. Plus. I'm very stoked to be joined today by two friends who are individually really smart about music to help me process my feelings about it and to, to get their uh, astute observations about it. So joining me in your ears today, uh, number one is Eric Danton, known professionally as Eric R. Danton. And I assume, Eric, that the R stands for rock. Is that correct? It does. Yeah, I had it legally changed. All right. Anyway, Eric has been a professional rock critic for going on 20 years, and that does not even include his various reviews for the University of Rochester Campus Times, which is where we met, although it does include his work for Rolling Stone and Paste Magazine, among many others. Eric, what would you say was your, your proudest moment of music criticism for the Campus Times? <laughs> I've never even given that any thought at all. <laughs> I took a nice photo of Rush guitarist Alex Lifeson that we ran on the front page once. So I remember that. that. I remember that photo. It was very dynamic. Way to go. Thank you. <laughs> also with me is Jeremy Rothman, known professionally as Jeremy Rothman. And he's currently vice president artistic planning at the Philadelphia Orchestra Association and graduated from the University of Rochester with a degree that encompasses musicology, music history and business administration. Jeremy, who would you say is the most famous musician whose cell phone number you have in your contacts? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I'm not going to disclose that. <laughs> give us. Can you give us some How initials? About, I guess it depends on what what area of music you're talking, like pop music or. Uh, if you were if you were talking to a group of a hundred people, an auditorium of a hundred random people, who's the one person that most of them would know? Jeremy, just oh, say it. It's well, a little bit you, well, you, We all know it. <laughs> Dead or alive is the other question. Um, well, as far as a. a, a a, a jack of all trades and also a musician. The initials are SM. We'll, we'll noodle on that and uh, come back to you at the end of the episode. So uh, let's just start by level setting here uh, and, and get your biases on the table. Uh, for each of you, what is your relationship uh, to and with the Beatles? So are you a fan or not a fan? Uh, and why or why not? And, and what do you uh, like and dislike or who do you like and dislike about the Beatles? Well, uh, you know, um, uh, this was music I started listening to as a kid. Uh, I think it was my mother who started putting on the records uh, and playing tunes for me when I was very, very young. Um, and uh, I think she first introduced me to the songs of Paul McCartney. Uh, when I'm 64, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, Yesterday, the kind of the kind of tunes that a, a kid can get can get drawn into. Um, and uh Later in life, uh, I started to discover those songs uh, and those albums on my own um, as I worked through all the various media from, uh, you know, tape to uh, CD and then uh, streaming services. 
Um, you know, one of the coolest gifts I ever received was my college graduation present from my older brother, who gave me the complete volume of sheet music of all of the Beatles music, where you can sit and sit down and everything is written out. Every orchestral part, piano part, guitar part, rhythm part, um, lyric is all written out in this, uh, I don't know, 700-page white volume. That and must be a, a weighty tome. It is. It's very <laughs> difficult to keep open on the on the music stand. Um, uh, but I think as I started to work my way through that, uh, I came to and, and as I studied music and music theory, really came to have an incredible appreciation for um, what these guys did um, as as musicians with very simple material um, and the magic behind very, very um, very simple and common chord progressions, and also the variety of styles that those guys were able to to capture. Um, and we'll, I know we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, how the Beatles um, uh, worked through so many different genres of music that they almost didn't have a sound of their own, um, and uh, led me to just an incredible appreciation that you can pick out a Beatles song for almost any mood you're in at, at, uh, at any time based on the incredible variety of their output. And Eric, I know you maybe come from a little bit of a different musical direction. What's your relationship with the Beatles like? Yeah, I do come from a different direction and I'm going to steer this back for the documentary with my answer. I think I was always pretty ambivalent about the Beatles, to be honest. And I know that appalls people who are very much, in love with the band, in love with their music, I recognized their genius and what they did for, you know, pop music writ large, how they how they helped change and steer and shape what we think of as, as pop music from the early 1960s on. I just never connected with it that much emotionally. I was always more into bands like the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Kinks from that era of the British invasion. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that I never, it, the Beatles music was always everywhere. It was ubiquitous. My family loved it. And so we would, it would always be on, you know, I have an uncle who was, had an uncle who was very much into the Beatles and an aunt who was very much into the Beatles. And I think, in looking back on this, that I never had the opportunity to really discover them for myself, for myself, because it was just always there. And, you know, I know that we, we want to talk about how the documentary has, has changed or reinforced our pre-existing opinions. For me, watching the documentary, watching Get Back, felt like an opportunity to discover this band on my own in a different context. It wasn't something that was just on, that was just ambient. It was me sitting down and really digging in. So it, it, it changed, the documentary changed my relationship with the Beatles in the sense that I think I have a far greater appreciation. It's not just recognizing intellectually what they did. It's being able to see that process and connect with it in a way that I hadn't ever been able to before. That's really interesting because I, I'm, I actually see a bit of a contrast between the two of you where Jeremy took this sort of hand-me-down from his family and really embraced it, and you sort of rebelled against it, Eric, which is, I think, almost opposite of what I sort of would have expected from the two of you. Jeremy, <laughs> what 
what what did the documentary do for your fandom? How did it change and or reinforce your opinions about the band? Well, it certainly helped, uh, I think, reinforce what I perceived as the individual personalities and contributions of each member of the group. Um, but I think most enlightening for me was that, you know, having grown up uh, long after the, the Beatles had broken up, uh, there was always this sort of sense of missing out on something that I wasn't alive to experience the Beatles um, or what what would have come of them had they created their uh, continued their creative process together. But about an hour into watching this documentary, I'm like, oh, these guys got to break up. This is a this is bad. <laughs> and I actually really yeah. I actually came to peace very quickly with that. These guys were done. Um, and as genius as that as those final sessions were and those last two albums that they put out, despite <clears throat> despite what they were going through as individuals and as an ensemble. Um, and I mean, also the, you know, looking at the ages of these guys, how old they were and everybody in the room, the audio engineers, the filmmakers. Well, still um, much younger than us. Exactly. And now yeah, having looked old. back on what I was like, or th I think I was like in my mid to late twenties, even early thirties and where you are creatively as an individual, you do feel Jeremy, like you were, you were insufferable. <laughs> and, and still am. But I mean, you do get this sense that there is this sort of creative peak in your life um, when you can do some really great things because you're bold and brash um, and willing to take on the world and still very rebellious. Um, and, uh, and and you have all these new, fresh ideas. Uh, and that's very much where they were. And, you you know, there's a point in your life where some of that starts to dry up and you need you need you need a change. Um, or, or you just, you may simply be good out of, out of, out of the ideas. And I think if you look at artists over time as to some of their most, pro, pro, most prolific eras, whether they're visual artists, musicians, uh, playwrights, that time, uh, in your, in your twenties and early thirties are, are some of the most prolific times, um, in, in the creative process. So I think for me watching all of this, um, it reinforced, uh, the, the artistic, uh, ingenuity of each individual member of the group um and uh and yeah a realization that those guys were they were done they they needed to break up and go their own ways well i want to get back to that idea that you know that there was just they just sort of had to break up but i think it's interesting that you said it it, it reinforced your opinion of the beatles as as individuals because i have to say from my perspective i went into this assuming that it was going to be an illustration of how these guys were in the process of breaking up and i expected it, their relationships to be a lot more acrimonious and certainly there were elements of that like when george harrison and and paul mccartney are arguing and when george quits the band or when john doesn't show up until you know after lunch or whatever but what I saw was that when it was time for these guys to work together and make the music, that they still were able to to do that. And I was I was uh, actually surprised at how um, sort of collegial and engaged John Lennon appeared to be, since I had just assumed that he had already checked out by this point in the, in the band's history. Eric, what did it change your perspective? on the personalities of any of those individual folks, because, you know, obviously you're a rock critic, Paul McCartney's still making music, uh, Ringo Starr is still performing music. A, a lot of this stuff is still in the zeitgeist and their personalities are still very much uh, uh, inspiring current artists today. 
what, what was your impression of the Beatles as individuals? I tended to tilt more toward your point of view, Jason, where I was struck as much as anything else by the fact that even though there were disagreements, even though there were arguments, it was clear that they were still friends. You know, even though George quit, I mean, I, I remember at one point someone asks, you know, has anyone else, probably the filmmaker, Michael Lindsay Hogg asked, has anyone else ever quit the band like this? And they were like, oh, yeah, Ringo's done it a couple times. You know, <laughs> right. this is, it was not necessarily that unusual for someone to, to kind of get fed up and storm out. But you could see when they were playing together, even if it was John doing that annoying thing where he would sing all the songs in a funny voice or uh, try his hardest to get everybody to laugh with, with a one-liner. Often it worked because they had spent so much time together and knew each other so well that even at this point in their career, they were still in some ways inseparable. Now, whether or not they needed to separate, I don't know. Um, I'm ambivalent on that question. Well, let me jump in there. You know, In my sure. essay, I, I characterized the documentary as a prison movie because yeah. it seemed like each band member was trapped to some degree because Paul McCartney, you know, had all these ideas and it was like, you know, herding cats to get the other guys to sort of go along with them. John Lennon was tapped out creatively, needed to go away, just be with his his wife. George Harrison had all this material that he just could not get <laughs> the Beatles to to record because there just wasn't room for him. He had a double album worth of material that he, he couldn't get on the record. So, you know, they're they're all trapped in this uh, this thing that was the Beatles and all these expectations and business pressures. As someone who, who has talked to a lot of rich and famous musicians, Eric, is the idea of being tra trapped by a persona or by fame or fortune expectations is that a, a, a stupid cliche or is that real? No, it's real. It's very real. And in more recent years, you see musicians dealing with that by stepping outside of their usual personas to some extent. Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys produces a lot of records. Um, Jim James from My Morning Jacket for a while uh, contributed to other people's records as Yim Yames. I'm still not entirely sure why he did that. <laughs> Garth uh, Brooks. But it may have, yeah, it may have, right. It may have been contractual Garth Brooks as Chris Gaines. Um, fame can become very stifling for musicians. And... They, you know, everybody deals with it differently. I think in the, in the case of the Beatles, Paul just wanted to work. And I've read elsewhere that he would be the one who would call up the other band members and say, hey, it's time to make a record. And if he hadn't done that, it seems like they might not have gotten around to getting back in the studio. John, you know, somebody in, in a conversation I had with somebody on Twitter, they said that Yoko seemed like John's emotional support human. So <laughs> I don't know what he might have been dealing with. You know, his life wasn't easy in terms of his family situation growing up. He, there, the fame has a corrosive effect. You know, Paul and John wrote all those songs in the early days because they were together constantly. They were sharing a hotel room in, in Hamburg. They were living together in the, in the same flat. They were together all the time and part of dealing with that togetherness all the time was to channel it into their creative impulses and write all these amazing songs that appeared on the early Beatles records or the early singles or whatever but by this point they were rich and they were living you know you see what is it Ringo's house I think a couple of times 
from the exterior. And it's just this gigantic palatial country estate looking place. So they were no longer sharing such close quarters and, and all the things that come with that. And don't forget about coats. the fur coats. I love how there's like the bespoke a bespoke suits. The fur coat competition <laughs> where they each start wearing more outrageous <laughs> fur coats each day. <laughs> yeah, Glenn Johns wins the competition for the craziest clothes, though. That guy... Uh, Only if you count the eyewear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, John was dealing with, with the fame and with whatever else by becoming massively codependent with Yoko or relying on her to some degree that I'm not sure is fathomable to anybody who wasn't one of them, one of those two. And, you know, Jason, as you say, George was frustrated because he had all this material. And, you know, there was a story in the New Yorker and a profile of Paul McCartney sometime last fall. And he told the writer that back in the early days, he and John had a specific conversation about doing as much of the songwriting themselves as possible. And, basically blocking out the other two and not letting them have as big a share of that, not letting them do as much of it. They were the team. They wanted to propel the direction of the band. And you could see George's frustration with that. Uh, you know, no, I'm, I'm saying knowing the backstory of that, you could see it as something that was the source of frustration for George. And then, yeah, you know, and you can spend s- a lot of time just staring into the middle distance and waiting for them to stop around. And you can see in the post Beatles, post Beatles breakup, I think George was the most immediately successful. Paul had a pretty good run with Wings, but uh, I mean, a lot of George was really coming into his own and probably deserved more space on the album than he was getting. Jeremy, I know you're a little less sanguine about George Harrison as you are the other two. Well, I I think uh, there were actually some moments in uh, in the documentary where you see George really struggling with some just basic things. Uh, I had a transition between chords and into a bridge and this, inc- this incredible insecurity he has as to where he ranks amongst the guitarists and the comparisons to Eric Clapton and things like this. Um, no doubt, you know, George did go on to create some incredible albums in music. Um, but uh, he, I, in, my, in my opinion, didn't have the same kind of ease and, and versatility. I mean, you know, to see, him sort of struggling with just sort of what is the most basic E minor chord on the piano and Billy Preston to just go over and fix it for him. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought was, uh, was, was very enlightening. And we can talk about Billy Preston and all of this as well. Uh, and, and what he, what he contributed to the, to these incredible sessions and, uh, and the dynamic that he brought into all of this. Um, well, okay. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about Billy Preston for a second. You know, I, I, I read an interview with George Martin once who said that his presence as a sort of jovial character was an emollient that helped all the Beatles sort of all the other Beatles sort of relax and stay on good behavior, which I thought was great. And certainly he made an indelible mark on a lot of important songs, particularly on that album. I do think it changed the sound pretty dramatically so that the get the get back or rather the let it be album sounds very different than any other Beatles album. But uh, what, what was your impression of, uh, of Billy Preston? Well, he, he definitely changed, changed the dynamics. You know, what you observe is a group that has no leader. Um, their, their manager had passed away. Uh, 
George Martin uh, appears, well, doesn't doesn't appear all that much throughout the documentary. He doesn't really seem to have much hands-on at all and just kind of letting the guys work. And you see Paul McCartney trying to get the guys to just sit down and play. Um, well, at one point during the, the hidden flower pot microphone conversation, <laughs> uh, Paul acknowledges that, I mean, this used to be John's band. The Quarrymen was originally John's band. And John recognizes that he's sort of ceded authority to Paul. Yeah, but yet he still can't he still can't wrangle them all together. And as they're creating these tunes, you have Billy Preston there in the corner who's able to navigate these songs in a way that's just it's just an incredible natural talent that he has an amazing ear uh, and, and an innate musical ability to sew together the different components of these songs. And I sense a twinge of jealousy from Paul McCartney. Hmm. He's he, he's an incredible songwriter himself. He fancies himself the, the pianist in the group. Uh, and here's Billy, who's able to sit down and knock out these amazing licks or figure out a, a little chord uh, transition, a harmonic transition into something. And my observation also is especially, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the rooftop concert at the very end of the documentary. Billy Preston is almost inc- entirely invisible. Mm-hmm. There's yeah, maybe yeah. one shot of Billy and a couple where he's in the background. And that has to be intentional with the number of cameras that were focused and and shots planned out it was intentional and was it truly that they were only focusing on the four beatles um they weren't ready to welcome welcome billy in or what is the deeper context there um in the late 1960s of billy's presence um on on the rooftop um but the fact that he's really overlooked um in that film footage really spoke volumes to me I think maybe you're giving the filmmakers way too much credit for thinking they planned out any of those shots on the rooftop. It seemed like it was a pretty fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing, because not least they had to finish it before the cops busted it up. That's that that was all such a lame construct that the cops were going to come and break it up. I mean, they know that that was all staged and everything. But uh, who really gets the amazing credit for that rooftop concert are the sound engineers that they were yeah, able to capture sure. such an amazing quality of sound and purity and clarity uh, running cables off of a rooftop downstairs into a studio. Those guys were geniuses. I had a different take on McCartney's relationship with Preston. I actually felt like in some places it was almost relief because Billy was there to play. And so, you know, Paul had all these ideas and Billy was able to fall right in and help him sort of get them going, you know, when Lennon is late and, you know, around and eating toast again. And again, my wife, we were watching this together and, and she said, he's like a teenage boy. He, he couldn't focus. He was spending a lot of time screwing around. You suspect he kind of smelled like a teenage boy. <laughs> and, and McCartney in Preston and Ringo too, for that matter, Ringo was always ready to, to play when anybody else was, but Preston came into play and, and McCartney, I think, valued the fact that there was someone who wanted to work because a lot of the time it didn't seem like Lennon really did yeah I probably side with Eric a little bit more on that but uh maybe on on the second viewing I'll uh look out for that jealousy that Jeremy was talking about Uh, switching back to their their solo careers 
can either of you imagine a scenario where they approached it like late peak Genesis, which is always the example I go to for a band that makes music, then they separate to do their own solo stuff, then they come back and make another Genesis album, and then they, they go out and do their solo stuff. Maybe Destiny's Child is another sort of late era example of that. Can, can either of you imagine that working? Jeremy, you said that they were a group that needed to break up. Do you think they needed to break up permanently? Or did they just need a vacation from each other? Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, if you can come back and recapture that magic again a second, a second time. Um, I, I don't know that I would ever put the Beatles and Destiny's Child in the same sentence, um, but good on you. I mean, certainly, you know, those guys came back together as a, as a trio after, after John's passing and created some things together. Um, but uh, I mean, those, those guys elevated as, as a group to a level where it, it's hard to continue to achieve at that level uh, and, to, and, and to carry that on. Um, and so you think there would have been diminishing returns no matter how they structured it? I think so. And I mean, they, 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 they went out on top. Uh, artistically and and I think I think that's okay um, and you know rather than try to keep force forcing a creative process that may result in things that are disappointing they le- they left an amazing catalog and I love the way that Paul McCartney has talked about I think this was in the documentary um, three two one or one two three which was the, the, the other one that was uh, just about three three two one it's on Hulu three, yeah three two one where McCartney says that he's just a Beatles fan now and I love that you know, for him, he now looks at it through a different lens as an outsider listening to this incredible output that that this group did and that it's almost a different persona than he than he lives now and that he's a fan. And I, I think that's the way of him saying, you know, we created something really, really great. And there's a next chapter in life. And that's OK. So, Eric, as a way of transitioning to you for this question, I, I think a lot of people compare the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And I think Chuck Klosterman has even uh, has even said that the Rolling Stones totally stopped evolving once the Beatles broke up. So maybe maybe the Rolling Stones are the the counterfactual for what the Beatles might have become. I know they didn't do a lot of solo stuff. Mick Jagger did his share of stuff, I suppose. But what's your take on on whether the uh, a Beatles album, solo album, Beatles album, solo album, what that, whether that would have worked out? Well, I mean, one of the things that was very clear to me in watching the documentary was how much the business side of things was starting to intrude on the creative side. I think I'm going to make the, well, I don't need to make the case. I'm going to go right out and say it. I think the reason the Beatles broke up was business related more so than it was a creative difference of opinion. I think the business stuff affected the creative stuff, but you know, Paul McCartney didn't want Alan Klein to be their manager and the other three did. And that, I think, is the crux of the breakup right there. You know, they started to be at odds about that sort of thing. And I think it spoiled whatever good feeling creatively could have continued to exist. So I think that it's very possible that they could have done solo album, Beatles album, solo album, Beatles album. I mean, you know, especially I think that would have been a perfect outlet for George. You know, we we already talked about how after the Beatles broke up, he released it turned out all things must pass was a triple album. So he had a lot, uh, you know, socked away in the can. Um, I don't know if I agree with Klosterman about the stones not continuing to evolve after the, the Beatles broke up. I mean, 
I, there are two ways to see that. One is that they had stopped evolving even before the Beatles broke up. Um, and the other one is that you can take their, their late seventies, early eighties, albums, you know, like tattoo you and bridges to Babylon and that stuff and then see an evolution. I'm not sure if it's a positive one or not. They incorporated some disco and they did some other stuff, but I think the Beatles probably, I mean, I do agree with Jeremy. They went out on top. They had created an incredible indelible body of work as compact as it was. I'm not sure that they could have improved upon that which is not to say that they couldn't have kept going. Yeah, Eric, you identified something that really jumped out at me was that so much of the time in this documentary, you can see the business challenges really infringing on their time as artists. There's all this tiresome logistical discussion about concerts and TV shows, and uh, you can certainly see the the shadow of Alan Klein in, in the wings. Jeremy, uh, obviously your your profession intersects business and art. Do you think it's it's possible at a high level to build a firewall between art and business, or is cross contamination just inevitable? Oh, it's it, it's inevitable. And and artists, you know, we like to think that the that the creation of art is uh, pure inspiration. Um, and in a lot of cases, it is altruistic in that way. But artists are also driven by their own personal financial interests and and opportunities for fame. Um, and I, I do think that partially drives some of that early life hunger and creativity. Uh, and we and like I was referencing earlier, you you know, you see that across across eras and and genres. Um, you know, in my in my world in classical music, we we think about well, what would have Mozart have done had he lived into his 40s, or Mendelssohn, or Schubert, or George Gershwin. Um, and we never got to see them at that point in their lives where they were more comfortable financially. Um, well, George Gershwin was, was, was very successful financially. Um, but uh, you know, what would have come of them uh, later in their lives had they achieved more financial stability, fame? Um, uh, and I, you know, I, sort of my question for Eric is like, what artists and creators do you see that had that second wave later later in their lives um where they had a great success early on and then were able to find that kind of second gear um and continue writing those 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 amazing things or is that is that is that the human experience or is that business interfering it's uh, it's a, it's a tricky question you're right it is a tricky question the thing that i couldn't help wondering I think you're right that business almost always intrudes on the artistic creative side, but I think artists who have really good, really competent management teams around them are able to fend that off more than artists who don't. And at this point in time, when the Beatles are are recording what became Let It Be, they didn't have a manager. Epstein or Epstein or uh, had died and they were sort of doing it themselves before they brought Klein on and I wonder what would have been different had they had a really strong manager and, you know, not one who was going to swindle them. But, you know, I think about bands who have, you know, Metallica is maybe not, their later work is not as good as their earlier work, but they've been managed by the same guy, Cliff Bernstein for the bulk of their career. And he, I think has helped insulate them from the commercial business money pressures by dealing with that stuff so they could focus on whatever they needed to focus on. And I, there are other examples of that, some of which are, are high profile and some of which aren't. 
but having that management team to look after your business makes it so much easier for the artists to not get bogged down in that kind of stuff and to be able to think more about the creative piece. Jeremy, the one sort of second wave band that comes to my mind, and Eric's totally going to roll his eyes at this one, but the one that I think of is Aerosmith. They had a... Um, sure, that's a good one, actually. Very, very successful run in the early 70s. Really went downhill towards the late 70s, mostly because of substance abuse, uh, partially because of management and, and production issues. And then, you know, their their late 80s, early 90s comeback, you know, very much was was made of that. And although by that time, the band had become a very different band where they were working with, you know, pop producers and and, and songwriters. But I don't know. I bet they were more successful in the late 80s, early 90s than they were in the 70s. Oh, absolutely. Because because they were playing to a larger audience rather than metalheads. Right. Yeah, that's actually a very good example. You know, I I am not the biggest fan of really either period of Aerosmith, but that's a great example of a band that had a lot of initial success and then had a really follow period and came back and followed it up and, you know, probably topped their initial success. And they came back with a totally different manager, by the way. They they switched managers in the in the mid '80s, right before their yeah. big comeback. You know, if there's if there's been one sort of recurring uh, criticism of Peter Jackson's cut of Get Back is that there's a, an awful lot of flab. I mean, eight hours <laughs> spread over three episodes, and a lot of that is just them sort of farting around in the studio. You know, you can discuss whether that worked for you as uh, as a person watching it. Uh, you know, I certainly enjoyed it because I wanted to squeeze every minute I could out of my experience with this with this band. Some some you know any new material, even if it's just them uh, covering uh, 1930s rockabilly songs. But do you think that them playing all those covers? was a form of like warming up for what they were trying to accomplish or was it procrastination? What was, what's your take on that? Both. There was a really interesting tweet from Questlove about this, who said that all that, all that, you know, what some consider flab is a very accurate picture of what happens for real in the studio. It's not that musicians go in there and buckle down and knock out, you know, five songs in a day. I, I mean, I guess in, in, the 1950s country realm that probably they probably were doing that but they go in there and they screw around and they play the songs that you know somebody woke up with that song in his head so they're going to jam on that for a little while or they're warming up or they're playing them songs that they wish they had written or songs that are just fun to play and it's a way of not getting down to your own work it is a way of warming up it is a way of just screwing around and having fun and that those were some of the periods in the documentary when it was clear to me how much those guys really did like each other and really did enjoy playing together because somebody could just start a rift or something and they'd all fall in and, and just know what was happening. Of course, you know, the, the, the Beatles are famously cited in the, uh, the, the book about 10,000 hours in their time in, in, in Hamburg um, playing all these tunes. And that is absolutely what made the Beatles so facile and all these different styles. And I think to see them in the studio just jumping between R&B and uh, 1920s jazz tunes and, uh, and, and, and hard rock of the, of the 50s and 60s, um, and to see the way that they're able to jump across all of those and absorb the essence of each of those different styles. 
Um, and that's what informed the incredible output of what the Beatles were, were able to do in that just amazingly fertile period where they put out all those albums in such a short amount of time because they were able to just move between all these different styles um, and create, create such unique sounds. Um, and yeah, it does show off that creative process and also how they just really had difficulty gelling at that point. I mean, I really yelled at the television on a number of occasions. You shut the hell up and just play already. Uh, stop bickering, stop stalling and, and procrastinating. Just play. Just see what comes out. Just play already. Uh, so, yeah, for those that are really inside baseball and really uh, love the Beatles and want to absorb every single moment, it's amazing and wonderful to watch, even them just mumbling and, uh, unintelligibly for, for a half hour at a time. Uh, certainly for people that are not as enthusiastic about the, deep, uh, the Beatles, I can see it being absolutely torturous um, and probably... <laughs> Probably just probably just turning it off um, after after some point. Um, but listen, uh, you know Peter Jackson's not one who's known for brevity anyway in his filmmaking. Um, True enough. So, <laughs> so I would expect no less from him. Well, I mean, did you think it was too long, either of you? I didn't. No, I you know I I really liked the contrast between those moments where I too was thinking, okay, just shut up and play something now. Play one of your songs. And then, you know, that contrast with Paul McCartney essentially writing Get Back in about a minute and 20 seconds when he's right. just screwing around on the bass and all of a sudden the riff emerges. You know, good thing John was late that day, I guess. But, you know, it's that duality I thought was fascinating. And look, it, it creates a space to give credit to everybody in that in that process. Um, I'm not sure people realize how infuriating it is to set up a recording studio and get it to sound right. And half the time is spent just getting the mics and the amps and everything balanced properly. So you're getting, so you're getting the right kind of sound. Um, and how that, drum sound. yeah, well, and how that, that, that can stall and interfere with the creative process, or it can be incredibly enlightening. Like, Ooh, that's a cool sound. How can we, how can we make that? Again, especially um, when they farm it out to some hippie that they met on the street, that this magic Alex guy was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and rolling, rolling George's home recording equipment off the truck. <laughs> uh, in an emergency. Um, but yeah, I mean, as it, it, uh, for me, one of the most amazing scenes was when the guys are all in the corner bickering about what the lighting is going to look like when the cruise ship arrives uh, off the coast. <laughs> and, and Paul, Paul is in the corner writing, let it be. And they're all, they're all bickering over this total like spinal tap, like nonsense. And Paul's just like sitting there writing one of the greatest songs of all time in the corner. Nobody's <laughs> well, it's my theory uh, and I sort of alluded to this before that the reason it's so long is because Peter Jackson is a big fan of the Beatles and he wanted to spend as much time with them as possible. And he wanted his audience to share in that. And so, I mean, nobody, nobody undertakes this sort of project uh, without being a big fan of the Beatles. Do you think that music documentaries should be undertaken subjectively by fans of an artist or a band or is it better if they're undertaken objectively by people who don't have an emotional stake in it? That's an interesting question. I think some of the answer has to be contextual. There aren't that many bands who have a billion hours of unseen footage from a recording session like the Beatles did for this. Um, so in that case, I think you would want a fan who can go in there and identify and sort of instinctually know what bits are important? Because I think there is still stuff left out, right? So you, you need somebody who can go in there and identify, okay, well, this is interesting. This is important. 
And then there was, you know, there was recently a documentary about the Velvet Underground as well. And I assume, uh, I can't remember the guy, name of the guy who made it, the guy who did Kids, I think, um, Todd something. I assume he was also a fan of the Velvet Undergrounds, but he was working with a much different set of source material. There was not tons of in-the-studio footage of them collaborating together. It was more like, you know, scratchy concert footage and interviews with people after the fact and that sort of thing. So there are two different types of documentaries, probably more than that, that can be made. And I think the approach should be dictated by the content. And, and, and Jason, to the point of, of how much material is in here, it allows the viewer to form much more of their own opinions and conclusions. We all know that editing, you could have made it look like the Beatles broke up over Yoko, that they broke up over Toast not being the right uh, temperature when it was delivered. Uh, they could have made it look like they broke up over over the sound system or the temperature it was on the roof, right? So um, by not editing as much and leaving as much of that material in there, I mean, you could have made it look like Peter Sellers broke up the Beatles uh, based on that one scene. Um, I wish someone had edited it. I wish the original film had been edited to make it look like they broke up over toast. That would have just been fantastic. <laughs> but, but Eric, I mean, you know, that would be very easy to do. You could well, yeah, well, and and the way the original was edited, it made it made it look like they broke up over Yoko, which seeing it in its fullness this time, it's very clear that that is not the case. Yeah, let's talk about Yoko, because she's obviously a presence in this documentary, but it's a pretty benign presence. And I think you see Paul at one point sort of understanding why she was there as John's emotional support human, you know, recognizing that they're in love and they just want to they just want to be together. But that sort of contradicts what McCartney wrote in his own autobiography about him being peeved that Yoko was, you know, there sitting on his amp. And, you know, what's she doing here? What, what's your take on on Yoko and her, her presence in the film? Uh, well, you, know, you you also see Paul uh, towards the end starting to engage with her musical ideas. And, you know, she was very much at the avant-garde of uh, 1960s sound painting. And, you know, say whatever you will about that style of music making uh, and, and how it's how it's persevered over time. Um, you know, but Paul, Paul gave it some time. They gave it some patience. They jammed around with it. They had some fun. Um, and it, it, it may, it may, have, I think it certainly played a role in, in pushing the Beatles sound um, in some ways, um, just like all the other styles that we were talking about earlier that they sort of jammed through. Um, some of that just loose, aleatoric, primal kind of sound that Yoko was, uh, was creating in the studio certainly, um, you know, bleeds through in some of the tracks on those last two albums. Her presence was very much cathartic when George quit and, Paul was on drums and Yoko was wailing at the mic. And I can't remember what John was playing guitar probably, but it, it's like she was helping them unleash this pent up frustration. But as, as my wife, Sarah observed, she wouldn't have been there in the studio if John hadn't wanted her there. So it's not as if, you know, the conventional wisdom has been that she made herself a presence and drove a wedge between the band members, but it does Definitely doesn't look like that here. John, you know, John wants her there, so she's there, and she's doing things to keep herself busy, whether it's painting or knitting or reading the paper or whatever she's doing. I have read that her presence was more contentious during the Abbey Road sessions, which started, let's see, I think Let It Be ended up in somewhere mid to late January of 1969, right? And so I think 
the Abbey Road session started in March or April or maybe as late as May of that year. So there were only a few months break. And it sounded it sounds like Paul, at least, was less pleased to have her around than uh, not least because she had some medical issue and was put on bed rest. And John brought a hospital bed into the studio so Yoko could still be there. But, you know, you have to lay that sort of thing on John more than Yoko, who was just hanging out, according to John's wishes. So, you know, she's been painted as this very divisive presence, but I didn't see that as such. By the way, Eric, you know, you mentioned something, um, which is the timing of how quickly all this stuff happened. And I, we, and Jason, you asked earlier about the commercial influence on the creative process. This was all jammed in because what Ringo had like a movie TV special to make. Um, movie to make. Oh, yeah. he was going to do a movie. It was that movie. Yeah, so they're they're put under this sort of ridiculous time pressure to create this in 14 days and get out of the studio for this like cheesy like holiday movie. I I don't remember what the what the movie was, but at that point in their in their careers, they had all these other things to schedule schedule around um, that put yeah. a kind of time pressure on them that also can egg on the creative process as well. Very much so. Uh, it's hard to be creative on the level that the Beatles had shown they could be creative when you have artificially imposed a deadline like that. I absolutely agree with you. So as, as we wrap up here, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about the idea of legacy. You know, I remember when in the, in the mid nineties, the big anthology came out and it was, you know, it was a book and a three part television special and a three CD, maybe it was a six CD set. Uh, and it was pitched as, you know, this is sort of like the, the last word of the Beatles. And here we are 25 years later <laughs> and people are still turning over rocks and, and finding new stuff. And I guess my question to you guys is, as we sit here now in 2022, do you think that the Beatles legacy is, is pretty much set in stone at this point? Or is there is there more to learn? Is there still room to change our opinions about it? Or is it just a matter of uh, opening new ears to the sounds? That, that That's the thing about great art, is that it, it, it holds up to that level of questioning and curiosity over time. A great, a great song, uh, a great play, a great book can, can uh, work under a variety of interpretations and environments. And that's why some of these Beatles tunes have been covered so many times and work every single time um, because because they're great. Uh, at some point, you know, as you go through all these anthologies and all this documentary footage, just like flipping through an artist's sketchbook, you discover they had bad days and not everything they wrote was great. And things that were released probably were, were not released for a reason. And there's kind of the curiosity factor that informs how things were created and what could have been another way of hearing something fresh through the artist's own voice. Um, but I don't like I don't like to go back and, and pick apart too many things that were put in the drawer in the bottom drawer for a reason by the artist. Um, I think they can be there as curiosities, but they shouldn't become part of the part of the canon of the lore because it's it, it's it's sort of rewriting what the artist intended to put out. And and for a lot of reasons, the things were discarded were discarded for for a pretty good reason. And that's okay. I think that's okay. In terms of their legacy, you know, I think that's an interesting question. When I was the rock critic at the Hartford Current, 
I would get in the mail a new book about the Beatles every month, maybe for 10 years there, you know, <laughs> almost every minute of that band's career has been documented. So in terms of the information available about them, I'm not sure that their legacy will change in that respect. What will be interesting to me now is to see how that legacy stands up or is honored or even acknowledged by younger generations of music fans. Uh, pop music has changed so dramatically that I don't know how much younger people are going back and listening to the bands that really created the template, paved the way, however you want to describe it. Uh, you know, my wife teaches about Spanish literature and, and culture, and she's mentioned a couple times artists like Pete Seeger, who uh, sang songs of the Spanish Civil War, or The Clash, which had a song about Spanish bombs in Andalusia, and her students don't know who she's talking about. <laughs> and I wonder if there will come a point in the next 10 or 20 years when young people, the age that we were when we started to get into this stuff, don't know that music as it's just not something that is part of their musical vocabulary to the, to the same, in the same way that it is part of ours, which is not to say they can't go discover it, but there will be so much to sift through to get back to that point. Uh, I just, I, I don't think they'll ever be buried and obscured, but I'm not sure that they will be as present and culturally important as they have been over the past 40 or 50 years. Well, Jeremy, you you might be the resident expert on music that used to be very popular and maybe isn't so much anymore. I mean, do, <laughs> not do sure you, it was popular at the time either. But do you hear echoes uh, in popular music today from classical music in any sense? A absolutely, and. Very often, great music and great art takes a bit of a hiatus and requires a rediscovery. Yep. So for those that aren't aware, the music of Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, who's considered one of the greatest composers with this immense output, his music went into a kind of uh, hibernation and was rediscovered in the mid-19th century and championed again. And... Uh, that's I think that's the case with with a, with a lot of great art. It, it 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 achieves a certain notoriety and it's viewed through the lens of its of its time. And then it may be there may be a break, there may be a lull when people come back. Oh my God, this is great rediscovery and great re resurgence of, of of this genius. And somebody else will take footage, uh, audio and video footage, and retell the story in in a different way. Um, if you read. Uh, historical text describing the music of Beethoven that was written in the 1950s. It is very different from how people write about Beethoven today, um, sure. because those those lenses and conversations and what we've learned about them continue to to change and evolve. And look, we all have kids here, and my my, my kids are the the oldest amongst the lot, and I have a couple of teenagers. And um, you know, my son says to me as I'm going through this documentary and. Uh, playing through some of the tunes, he says to me, Dad, I really don't like the Beatles. And it's like it's like in the field of dreams where Ray Kinsella tells his confesses that he doesn't he doesn't like shoeless Joe Jackson and thinks he was a crook. Um, you know, and it breaks your heart. And then for a week or two later from the company, you know, Dad, I listened to actually a couple of songs and I really like the John Lennon stuff. I like the harder stuff. Um, you know, the Paul McCartney tunes and the Ringo Starr stuff, I think is really lame and corny. 
I was like, that's fantastic. Like you actually listen, you know, and he's just, he's going to discover and go on that own, his own journey with that music uh, over time. And the same way that I have, because yeah, sure. I used to love like Octopus's Garden. I listen to that. I'm like, that is the lamest song. Man, is that great. Uh, Yellow Submarine. Are you kidding me with that? Um, uh, and <clears throat> coming to have a greater appreciation for some of the other things in there, in there. Uh, but another, another artist that I maybe had, um, not had the same affinity for when I was younger and your your perceptions and your appreciation for these things change and evolve over time so yeah there may be a, a period of time for 50 years where the Beatles are you know lumped in with Destiny's Child um to pick on them again and uh and it may be you know another 7,500 years from now when there's suddenly this great uh rediscovery and um and and appreciation for what this amazing group did I'm very confident that um, the the output of the Beatles in those critical years um, in in the mid mid to late 60s are some of the most amazing musical outputs of the of the 20th century. Um, you've got the late Mahler symphonies, you've got Bernstein's West Side Story, and you've got uh, the Beatles um, from uh, Sgt. Pepper through Abbey Road and Let It Be as I think the greatest testament to music in the 20th century. Even if the Beatles themselves go out of fashion or whatever for a little while. I think their influence not will not necessarily, you know, there will be people who are reflecting the influence of the Beatles without necessarily realizing that that is what they are reflecting, musicians or whatever. And, you know, you could probably make a case at Destiny's Child, who I think are in their own way, different way, also extraordinarily influential, especially over the last 20 years, uh, there are probably things that you could point to in their catalog that have also stemmed from stuff that the Beatles did. So it's not an obvious influence. It's not an obvious chain of descent, but it's going to be there. And even if the Beatles are not name checked by, you know, musicians in 40 years, I bet some of the musicians that they influenced more directly will be. So, you know, it's, it's not always a direct line. And, and, and the Beatles will, rec will, will represent a very specific moment in music. They were uh, coming of age in their creativity uh, during this incredible explosion of technology and of the ability to create things in the studio that never been, never been created before. And they're going to be very much representative uh, of that as yeah. well. Um, that, you know, all great success or most great success is a combination of factors of talent, luck and timing. Um, and that's certainly the case in the Beatles that their timing was such that they had these ideas to embrace this technology. And there were plenty of other bands trying to do that as well around the same time. Um, but the Beatles really found a way to uh, explore it and exploit it in ways that nobody else did. And that in and of itself, I think they'll be a representative ex of example of that style of music making for, for years to come. And what was great about this whole documentary, you can see they could still go back into the studio and record without all the extra studio enhancements and just be musicians again and that really was the most amazing thing uh, to see in this documentary and this footage yep you guys i want to thank you so much uh for joining me this is exactly the kind of discussion i was hoping to have uh there's really nothing better than talking about ideas with people who know what they're talking about i felt like i was back in my college dorm for a minute which uh was just fantastic thank you so much for your time and your ideas and your expertise thanks for doing it this has been uh jason hammersley with eric r danton and jeremy rothman stay tuned for uh something else 
from the Hammerslay Inquisition soon. <laughs>